We're going to have our reading now uh, from Hosea chapter uh, 4 and 5. So if you'd like to turn to that, can someone call out the numbers for the uh, Bibles? Eight three nine in the large print. Four three eight in the smaller ones. Okay, reading chapters four and five. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for my contention is with you, O priest, You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priest. I will punish them for their ways, and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord, to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains, and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with the prostitutes. And sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Is Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone into the uh, deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. 
Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his, in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. Amen. What do you do when you hear bad news? There are different ways people respond to it, aren't there? When you hear bad news, you can bury your head in the sand. You can, there's some sort of people who deal with it then and there, don't they? they just have to sort it out. You can ignore it altogether. Or some people try and put a good spin on it. But what about when you read bad news in the Bible? Those passages that talk about sin, that talk about judgment. Do we just ignore them? Do we try and put a good spin on them? Do we deny them? Well, our conviction of Bethel is that we preach them. God put them in the Bible for a reason. And part of the reason that we have these bad news passages is because actually they form part of the good news. We talk about the gospel sometimes, don't we, as though it's one idea. But really, it's a collection of ideas, really. It's better to think, perhaps, uh, of the gospel at one point. But when you sort of zoom in on it, you see, really, that there's a circle. There's several ideas that must be held together. So creation, sin, judgment, the cross. That's Jesus' resurrection, reign and return. I just couldn't fit that in the circle. And the response. All of those things form part of the gospel message that we preach. And each arc of the circle, each different part of the circle, implies the other bits. If you don't have one of them there, you can make out what that part is. And none of them make sense without the other parts, if you think about it. So you can't understand sin without really understanding creation, that God made us and actually we owe him our obedience. You can't understand judgment until you understand sin. You can't understand why God would punish until you understand how bad things are. You can't understand the cross without understanding judgment, because Jesus is taking God's judgment on the cross. So all these different ideas hang together like in a circle of the gospel. And all of them imply the other parts, and all of them need the other parts as well. 
And when we understand one part of that circle better, we understand the whole circle better. When we preach one of them and understand it, we we get more of the other ones as well. And it means also that we need to preach each part in the light of the others. And that's what we're going to do this morning in our next section of Hosea. We see it's quite a thin and judgment-heavy passage. But really it's there to teach us about that big circle. So it builds on the passage that we looked at last week uh, in Hosea. Uh, We saw that Hosea was called by God to marry a prostitute called Goma. Hosea's marriage to unfaithful Goma mirrored God's marriage to unfaithful Israel, his covenant with them. And the rest of the book really expounds on those themes. It sort of picks up on the life experience of Hosea and, and pads it out. It explains it to us better. And our passage this morning is no exception. So we're going to look at it really in three big points. Oh, I've got it up there all at the beginning. Uh, but the first uh, thing is that they broke his rules in chapter 4. They broke his rules. And firstly, we see the sin of Israel. The chapter, uh, chapter 4, is set out like a court case. That's really what it's getting at when it says the Lord has a controversy with the people. Really what it's saying, he's got a charge against the people. He's got a, 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 a court case against them. They are in a binding relationship with God. They're in a covenant. But they've broken their side of the covenant. So thinking back to last week, it's almost as though this passage is like Hosea taking them, uh, God taking them through the divorce courts. They promise to love, honour, obey. But look what they've done. Look at the second half of verse 1. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They promise to love, honour and obey, if you like, but they don't honour, they don't love, they're not faithful. They don't even know God anymore. And he's supposed to be their husband. So far from being their devoted, uh, his devoted wife, actually it looks as though they've given up on God. So they aren't doing what they should be doing. They should be giving their devotion. They should be giving their faithfulness, but they're not. So they're not doing what they should be doing, and they are doing what they shouldn't be doing. Have a look at verse 2. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So we have their swearing, making uh, oaths or taking God's name in vain. Lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Those things might start to ring a few bells. They're from another famous passage in the Bible, aren't they? Those are actually five of the Ten Commandments. The ones that we have missing are are the ones at the beginning, aren't they? Uh, Putting God first and not making idols. Which, as we've seen in Hosea, is exactly their problem, isn't it? That's really what's behind this breaking of the rules elsewhere. We've got other ones that are missing as well, but it's likely just a representative selection of the rules that they've broken. You see, the Ten Commandments, if you like, was their side of the deal. That was their side of the covenant. That's what they had to do. And God is saying, you've broken them. You've broken my rules. You've broken the covenant. Even the land is feeling the effects of it. Do you see that there in verse 3? Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. It's like a decreation of the land. The animals, the birds disappear. It's a forerunner of what's coming, isn't it? Total destruction. 
And you think, well, what has been going on? Surely the leaders of the land, the priests, the people who are supposed to stand for God, well, they should be stopping this happening, shouldn't they? They should be stopping the people from breaking the covenant. But instead, actually, we see that the shame of the leaders in verses 4 to 11. Let no one contend, let none accuse, for it is my, for it is you, for with you is my contention, O priests. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble by night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge, and I reject you from being a priest before me. Instead of helping the people, they've been destroying them. How is it that the priests have been destroying them? Well, they've been denying knowledge to them. Do you see that? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. That's what he's saying to the priests. It was the job of the priests to teach the word of God, to teach the Bible, to teach the covenant. But they've been denying that knowledge to the people. Same with the prophets. They've not been doing their job. So God is going to destroy their nation. That's what he's talking about with destroying their mother. Probably harking back to Goma, that image of Goma being uh, the mother of the nation and the people being its children. He'll reject the priests and they shall be priests no longer. They have forgotten the law, so he's going to forget them. Because instead of stopping sin, they've been feeding on it. Do you see that there in verse 8? They feed on the sin of my people and are greedy For their iniquity. Seems confusing a little bit. How can you feed on sin? That's a bit strange. Until you understand that that word sin there is also the same word they use for sin offering. And that's what the priests used to eat when people brought sacrifices for their sin. So it's almost as though he's saying the way they looked at it, the more the people sin, the more they get to eat. They were literally feeding on the sin of the people. The more they sinned, the more they ate. And the more the priests increased, the more sin increased. Uh, do you see that? It says, uh, verse 7, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. So it would be like, sort of, you expect, don't you, if you increase the number of policemen, that crime would go down. You sort of assume. There are some statistical anomalies that mean that's not the case. But in general terms, you expect that. The more police, the less crime. And in the same way, you think, yeah, the more priests, the less sin. But you say, no, the more priests, the more sin. So God will change their glory to shame. God will punish them. They will eat but not be satisfied. They'll be promiscuous but not fruitful. They'll be punished for their deeds. Why? Well, they've left God for sex and booze. Basically. Look at there in verse 10. Because you have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine. Sounds foolish, doesn't it, that you'd swap God for sex and booze? But I think back over my time as a Christian and think of all the people that I knew uh, over the years, how many have given up their faith in God to go after nights out or to go after that girl or that boy. I'd rather go out drinking. I'd rather have sex than God. And the priests here are just the same. See, the irony of the priests is that they've failed to teach the knowledge of God, but then they've lost it themselves. Do you see that? The end of verse 10. Those things take away the understanding. They say, don't you, there's some people drink to forget. Well, they've forgotten. They've forgotten God. They've gone so far away. They can't even remember what they're supposed to be doing. 
So it's the shame of the leaders. And it's because they have the spirit of Goma. You see that there in verses 12 to 14. My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains. And burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar and terebinth. Because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore. And your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore. Nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes. And sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. You see the stupidity of the situation they put themselves in? Instead of hearing from God, they want to hear from a piece of wood. They get their counsel from a broom handle or a walking stick. It's a bit like uh, in the children's film Frozen, uh, which I've seen one or two times. uh, (laughs) Thanks to the boys. Um, There's a scene where uh, one of the main characters tries to introduce one of the other ones to his friends. We're supposed to be love experts. Uh, and instead, we walk in this room and all there is is just rocks. And he starts talking to the rocks. Now in the film, it turns out actually they're trolls, so it's okay. But it's the folly of that situation. They think that guy's mad. Because he's talking to rocks. But here are the children of Israel who should be talking to God. And instead they're talking to sticks. They're expecting advice from wood. So they go after advice from the wrong places. And they worship God on the mountaintops. You see that there in verse 13. Under various different kinds of tree. They're not even fussy about what tree they go under. As long as it's got good shade. Probably because, as I said last week, the way that they worshipped their gods involved a lot of physical activity. It involved prostitution. So God exposes the folly of this too. He's saying the women that you commit adultery with, the women that you are... Uh, going as cult prostitutes. Do you not realise that they are your wives? That they are your daughters? That's who you're committing adultery with. That's who you're engaging in prostitution with. These women who should have the protection of their husbands and fathers instead of being exploited by them. I often wonder that when you hear of sort of famous porn stars. You think, where, where is their dad? Where is the mum? That's someone's daughter. That's someone's son that's involved in that. Where are they? And here the answer is nowhere. They're just letting them get on with it. They're encouraging them to do it. But the judgment of the women is nothing compared with how God will judge the men who perpetuate this. They've totally lost it, haven't they? He says it right there at the end of verse 14. And the people without understanding, that's them. They've completely lost the plot. They shall come to ruin. So the case for Israel, the, the judgment against Israel is awful, isn't it? And we're left thinking, well, is it going to be the same for Judah? Well, we find out in verses 15 and 16. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? This is a sign to Judah. It's a warning to Judah. The two places that he mentions there are the two golden calves uh, places with Jeroboam set up in the northern kingdom. The idea with them was to stop the people going down to the true temple down in Jerusalem. 
Beth Avon there is probably a play on words. Hosea really likes puns. It's a play on words with Bethel. Bethel is the house of God. Beth Avon is the house of wickedness. He's saying this place that's supposed to be the house of God, well, it's the house of wickedness. These places were a snare to the northern tribes. So this is a plea for Judah not to do the same things. Don't go to those false shrines. And don't even think of going there and trying to swear by the name of God, to swear by the name of Yahweh. This is not the same thing. Don't just pretend it's the same as going to the temple in Jerusalem. Because Israel is like one of those stupid, immovable, golden cows, he's saying. Like a stubborn heifer. They're supposed to be like sheep. He's supposed to be like their shepherd. And instead they're like a cow that just won't move. So Hosea tells them to leave them alone. All they care about, as we see at the end of that passage in verse 18, when the drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. So all they care about is drink and sex, just like their priests. So God will judge them. God will sweep them away like a strong wind, and he will bring them to shame. So they broke his rules. And God's answer to that, so God will break them. Chapter 5. In lots of ways it's a terrifying chapter, chapter 5, as we see the comprehensiveness of God's judgment. Firstly we see in 1 and 2 that no one will be exempt. Everyone is included. 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread at Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into the slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Everyone is included in this judgment. No one is exempt. The priests, the people, the house of Israel, the king even, all are included in this judgment. And it's a great leveller, isn't it, to us? Judgment. All stand equal before God. Whether king or queen, whether banker or baker, all stand equal before the Lord God. The problem this passage shows us is that all stand equally condemned. Instead of helping people in this passage, instead the leaders have been hunting people. We don't know the exact reasons why those two mountains are are chosen. God had done mighty acts at them. But perhaps it's, they've now become idolatrous shrines. That's what most people seem to think. But all of them are involved in this snare, this trapping of people. Whether by taking part in building the shrines or just by not tearing them down. All of them have been involved in getting everybody involved. They've been bringing everybody under God's judgment. So no one is excluded from this charge. No one is excluded from the judgment to come. So no one will be exempt and nothing will be hidden. We see that in verses 3 to 7. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord their God. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and their herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. God sees what they have done. 
God knows them, but he's saying they don't know him. If they did know God, they wouldn't have gone after other gods. If they did know God, they wouldn't have played the whore. And their pride is before him. You see that there in verse 5. God sees even what's on the inside, let alone uh, what's on the outside. He knows even what's in their hearts, what's in their thoughts, what's in their motives. Nothing is hidden from him. And he's not fooled by the sacrifices that they bring. He won't accept their flocks or herds. God will hide himself from them. In fact, in this passage, he's the only thing that's hidden. He's the one who hides himself away. He will not hear their pleas. He will not accept their sacrifices. You see, if you looked at Israel, you might think on the surface things were okay. They're bringing sacrifices, after all, to God. But their hearts are a million miles away from him. And their deeds do not permit them to return. Their deeds show that there's no repentance there. So God will not have them back. Nothing is hidden from God. He sees everything. Nothing will be hidden in judgment. And then thirdly, nowhere will be safe. Look at verses 8 to 11. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. We see here what's going to happen. Even though Israel uh, was going to serve as a warning to Judah, Judah is going to be judged as well. Both nations will be judged by God. The places that are mentioned in verse 8, they're, they're on the border between the two. Uh, they're the places in Benjamin that sort of get caught in all the conflicts between the two countries. So it's fair to say they knew their fair share of sounding alarms because if there were ever any tensions, they were the border zone between the two places. And being here in the middle, they're able to warn both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. <coughs> Judgment is coming to both. The northern kingdom, it says, shall become a desolation, a ghost town, a haunt for jackals. Israel will be crushed because they preferred filth to God and God will judge them for it. But we see too that the southern kingdom of Judah will have God's wrath poured on it too. Their rulers have been like those who move landmarks, it says. Now, it's not the idea there that, you know, we think of landmarks as sort of famous things, like the cow and calf rocks. It's not as if they've, they've gone up and sort of moved them a bit further down the valley, or if they've gone into Otley Market Square and moved the, uh, the, the clock tower. Those landmarks were really places uh, that, that showed you where your land was. So if you move your boundary stones, if you move your landmarks, it's sort of a power grab on other places. It's a bit like, I hope you've never had this situation, but you know that awkward situation where your neighbour starts to encroach on your garden? And you're thinking, this is my land. But they're sort of moving their landmark, they're moving their boundary. It's nasty, it's unpopular, and it's unjust. And that's what Judah's leaders have become like. They've become sneaky, plotty, connivers. So God will pour his wrath on them too. So the northern kingdom is judged. The southern kingdom is judged. So nowhere is safe. They cannot run to the south. 
They cannot stay in the north. They have nowhere to run. Nowhere will be safe. And then finally in this section, no one will be able to help. Have a look at 12 to 15. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you, or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt, and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. God is against both of them, Israel and Judah. Like a moth against clothes. I don't know if you've ever had that situation where you found a moth sort of tucked away in your wardrobe. It's just eaten through your clothes. Like dry rot in a house. It's pictured like a wound to them. And Israel and Judah see their wound. They see that they're broken. They see that the moth's been at work. They see the dry rot. So where do they run to? Not to God, but to Assyria. And this is what happened in history. Other foreign powers started to attack Judah, started to attack Israel. But instead of turning to God for their protection, they turned to other nations. But Assyria can't protect them from God. He says it will be like a lion devouring them, tearing them to pieces, destroying them and then just returning to his den. So God is against them. Nobody will be able to help them. And this is a picture really for us of the big judgment, isn't it? Of the one that is to come. No one will be exempt. Nothing will be hidden. Nowhere will be safe and no one will be able to help. So in conclusion, what about us this morning? Well, we broke his rules too. That's the problem for us, isn't it? Now you might want to argue that actually we're Gentiles, biblically speaking, most, I imagine most of us. You might want to argue, well we don't know the Old Testament law, we're not in a covenant with God. But the Bible says that we have consciences. The Bible tells us that we should know God's law because we have a conscience, which excuses us and condemns us. On the back of your sheets you'll see there's a quote from Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. It's saying that all of us, whatever we know of the Bible, have these inbuilt rules inside us. And we don't even follow them. What one of us can say this morning that we've lived up even to our own conscience's standards, let alone to God's standards. So as human beings, we have broken God's rules. And we stand in the same position as sinful Israel. We have sold ourselves into the service of other things, things other than God. So we are facing the same judgment as idolatrous Israel. They were facing hell on earth. We are facing hell in hell. So their judgment is a picture of our own final judgment at the hands of God. No one will be exempt. Nothing will be hidden. 
Nowhere will be safe. No one will be able to help. We stand utterly condemned. But this is where we need to think through the circle of the gospel, isn't it? We focused heavily on sin and judgment, because that's what our passage focuses on. But those things imply the other parts of the circle, don't they? The amazing truth of the full circle is that we broke God's rules, so God broke his son. We broke God's rules, so God broke his son. Let that sink in for a moment. The horror faced by Israel. Jesus faced on the cross. Instead of breaking us, God broke himself. Such is his great love towards us. Such is his great mercy. The eternal punishment that we face, Jesus took on the cross. That is, if you do what God says. What does God say? Have a look at verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. That's how we take hold of what Jesus did on the cross. We acknowledge our guilt. We earnestly seek him. And that's the other part in our gospel circle, isn't it? It's another part, the response. We're to repent and believe. That's really what it's saying. That's what they were to do. They were to turn from their sin and turn to God. And that's what we do in the light of the gospel as well. In light of all that Jesus has done for us on the cross. But if we will not do that, if we will not turn to God, then we're still facing that horrific judgment that we read about. If we will not let Jesus take our judgment, then we must face it ourselves. Now, please don't sit there and think that I'm speaking to somebody else this morning. We need to remember that these passages were written to religious people. People who brought their sacrifices to God. To Yahweh, the God of Israel. People who went to temples that were in names supposed to be for God, at least. It's just the other places that they went to. It's just the lives that they lived outside the temple that didn't match their lives inside the temple. Whenever we hear a call in the Bible to repent and believe, it's speaking to us. That's what we do as Christians. Because repentance never stops in our lives. Faith never stops. Whenever we hear this call to repent and believe, it's for us. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. So this morning, I want to leave you with this thought. Repent and believe. Whether it's your first time or whether it's your millionth and first time. Return to God. Turn to him. Jesus' sacrifice is enough, even for our lifetime of sin. He took it all on the cross. All the judgment that could fall on us fell on him. And that's incredibly good news, isn't it? We have the bad news. This is the good news. And it's better than we could ever hope for, especially because we understand the bad news better. We understand just how hopeless our situation was. So we understand what a great saviour our Lord Jesus is. So what do we do when we hear bad news? Well, we look at the big picture. We look at the full circle. And we praise our great and wise, glorious God for the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the cross. 
Thank you that it takes away your judgments by putting it on your son. And Father, we pray this morning that we would repent of our sin, of our seeking after our own things and ourselves, going after things that are not you. Father, whether we've been a Christian for a month or for 50 years, Father, help us to keep repenting and turning to you. Help us to keep putting our trust in the gospel, that Jesus' death is sufficient for us, for me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.